Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. This is the Pitchfork Review. I'm Pooja Patel, the editor of Pitchfork. Today, we're here with Joey Aiken, a critic and the publisher of the Afrobeats Intelligence Newsletter, and Pitchfork staffer, Mankapur Conte. Hey, guys. Hey, Mankapur here. Hello, Joey here. You're calling in from where, Joey? I'm calling in from Lagos, Nigeria. Today, we're going to be talking about the rise of Afrobeats, which is the latest international sound to infiltrate the American consciousness. It's a complicated catch-all of a term to describe a cluster of music genres born from West Africa. You might recognize the songs and sounds of Afrobeats in everything from club hits to music from artists like Drake and Beyonce. Joey, you've been part of this scene for years, and I'm so glad to have you here. I'm wondering if you could give us some stylistic features of Afrobeats, or, you know, songs that we can hear the Afrobeats influence on. Afrobeats is a very interesting genre. It's one of the genres that, you know, is filled with a lot of adaptability and, you know, every day is different and it keeps moving. The very nature of Afrobeats is a bit of a sponge. It absorbs everything. So there's a bit of everything in it. But what you would know, what defines it mostly is the polyrhythmic drumming. There's a lot of heavy drumming in it. There's also a bit of a pidgin English dialect used and some traditional local dialects like Yoruba, Igbo. And then there's a huge emphasis on melody. Melody is very big in Afrobeats. And example of songs where you could find this in- include Bona Boy's Ye, One Dance by Drake. You could see some of the songs of Beyonce's The Gift album. Come Closer by Whiskid. Fall by DeVito and a few others. Uh, So for example, in Fall, we hear polyrhythmic drumming. We call it pom-pom. It's this music style that, you know, dominated African music in 2017 and 2018 a pop star. So Pom Pom came from uh, Ghana High Life, uh, or rather it samples elements from Ghana High Life. And so you find a lot of that in uh, some songs from Afrobeats. So with this, you'd also have an infusion of Pigeon English. And the theme is usually tied to women and, you know, adjacent themes surrounding women. So 
that's an example of the musical elements of Afrobeats. I feel like that song Fall was huge. It was everywhere here, even on the radio. And when that first came out in 2017 is when American radio and American audiences started to really pick up on Afrobeats. That was when it felt like there were the beginnings of a real movement behind it, in my mind. Mankabur, as our kind of resident expert on staff, what have you noticed in the past couple of years about the movement of that sound here? Yeah, I mean... Just thinking about Fall in itself, it's, you know, the longest charting Nigerian pop single in Billboard history. It became that sort of at the top of 2019 after being out for a while. And then also at the top of that year, just 2019 was just like a really incredible year for Afrobeats visibility in the U.S., I think. Like at the top of it, you know, Coachella's announced and Mr. Easy and Burna Boy are announced as acts for this huge festival. And Burna Boy, of course, is a little indignant when his name isn't as big as, say, Ariana Grande's on the poster. And that goes ahead and inspires the title of his upcoming album, which drops that summer, African Giant. Could you really quickly explain who Burna Boy is for folks who might not be as familiar as we are. I think of Verna Boy as sort of like one of the major like faces of Afrobeats right now. He's a Nigerian artist who'd been making music for quite a long time. Joey, do you know around when Verna Boy might have started making music? Bonaboy started making music in the early 2000s, but he got his first break with the single Like to Party locally here, and that was in 2012. Right. And I think his sort of American breakthrough comes with African Giant. And, you know, he's all over late night. He has a really interesting interview with Trevor Noah on The Daily Show. And a little bit before African Giant drops in the summertime, Beyonce drops The Gift, which Joey had mentioned, you know, she calls it her love letter to Africa. Find your way back. Find your way back. It's filled with Afrobeats and other sorts of sounds from the continent. And producers like Ghanaian producer Guilty Beats is called in to help helm the sound. Do we feel like Beyonce's The Gift is the thing that implanted it here permanently? Or is that just like the latest kind of like superstar, you know, hat tip? I think to me, it's the latest superstar sort of hat tip. I mean, I think in thinking probably about like Afrobeats music, like charting on Billboard, it's probably really significant. But um, when I think about like my experiences in hearing Afrobeats in the world outside of my family, outside of, you know, my immediate African community, I'm a first gen American. My parents are from Sierra Leone. There were other music like things like Joanna by Afrobeat that were everywhere and are, you know, sort of like anthems in the genre. Totally. And I think that when we consider, especially whenever a superstar comes in and says, you know, here is my tribute, it's often very far removed from what the thing actually is, or it's like an adaptation from a local movement or a local scene or something that is like existed for a very long time. And I think that one of the questions that we will definitely keep returning to in this conversation is what is Afrobeats? Like, what is it exactly? I think it would be helpful if you guys could 
help define that? Like, where does that term come from originally, both geographically and culturally? I mean, the lore of the term Afrobeats is that around, you know, 2010, there are African immigrant communities in the UK that are just like turning up to a lot Mm -hmm. of music from Nigeria and Ghana and other parts of West Africa in the clubs, at parties, and DJs and promoters then need a way to sort of package and sell these events and these shows that are going to feature this popular West African music. And so the term Afrobeats is coined as a catch-all for the sound. Right. What about, Joey, from your perspective? Afrobeats, not to be confused with Afrobeats. It's a play on Afrobeats, but like not right. to be confused with it. Put an S to Afrobeats and it becomes Afrobeats. So originally, Afrobeats is the music from Fela. Fela was a huge pioneer of a new sound in Nigeria then uh, that spread from Nigeria to a lot of places. So it was called Afrobeats. It was the basic template that a lot of people worked with in creating their own sounds. Fela got horns from jazz, got sounds from soul, he got soul, he got jazz, he got some certain traditional African chants. And they also included included a lot of instruments, but um, you know, multi-layered instrumentation to create something called Afrobeat. A great example of it is the song Trouble Sleep Yanga Wikam. It was released in 1972 off the album Ofo Fight by Felakuti. You know, much of Fela's music back then, they were very pragmatic. A lot of it was militant. A lot of it was activist. Uh, Fela was a politician who also, you know, fought for the rights of his people and, and was a nemesis to the Nigerian dictators uh, during the dictator uh, military regime. His work and his actions inspired a generation that even down to this point in time, a lot of the music that we call Afrobeats now they still collect from Fela's composition and, you know, utilize it in the music. So Fela has been sampled across board. So when, you know, he died after a while, down here we began the local music industry back in Nigeria. With a lot of progress happening, the world opening up and people becoming aware of our music, the people in the UK decided that, hey, our music is getting so much love here. Music from Nigeria is getting so much love. How about we just try to give it form, give it a name and put it through the market and through the systems. And so they decided to name it Afrobeats. And yeah, that's that's how it came to be. All the pop music coming in from Nigeria, Ghana, Sub-Saharan Africa, they just name it Afrobeats just to give it the marketable entity. I'm wondering from where you are, Joey, does the kind of boom of Afrobeats in the U.S. right now feel like a crossover moment there as well? Like, does it feel like there's a big, exciting artist or collective or movement that is really making an impact and going to sustain? Or does this feel like kind of delayed Western critical acclaim, as tends to happen with a lot of international music? We've known for a while that we have a lot to offer to the world. A lot of people are hopeful, to be honest. It's been that way since 2016 when uh, Whiskey and Davido got signed to RCA 
and then a few companies came in. But we're very excited that our music is getting international acclaim. But within the industry, a lot of people tend to qualify this as a chance to make money. There's increased revenue now coming into the market. And so we're happy that they're doing that. We're happy that they're bringing infrastructure. But it's a bit of a scramble. So it feels like the wild, wild west. And so there's no sure, certain feeling what this is. We're hopeful that there's a there's a crossover that would happen. But right now, it's just everyone rolling the dice and hoping that, okay, someone's bringing a contract here. This one's bringing this new strategy yeah. here. This one's doing everything. We're just trying to cross over. So right now, we can't fully quantify the feeling. We just want to cross over, no matter what it looks like. You mentioned that all of these major music institutions have now embraced the sound and that it feels like you're now waiting to see how that continues to manifest. When did that all first start? When did you see the indications that Afrobeats is going to spread beyond West Africa and earn this kind of global recognition? Yeah, definitely. I think the first ever marker that gave us that gave us an inkling into what this could become was 15 years ago when African Queen by an artist named Two Faced Dibia back then. Yeah, yeah, you are my African. It blew. It blew to a large extent. It was synced into movies. Came a hit. A lot of people used it for adverts. Two Face even won the World Music Award. And so that was when we knew that something from this market could be something. And then around the 2010s, with a lot of migration happening and, you know, a healthy UK diaspora happening. We finally began to see our music try to travel. The band got signed to Kanye West Good Music in 2011 after a phenomenal local run here. And then in 2012, that's when we finally confirmed that, you know, we're going to have a hit. Like we're po- it's possible for us to have a hit outside Africa. And that happened with the band's Oliver Twist. I like Genevieve. I think that she's so sweet. Anaya Buhari. Cause she knows the drink Oliver Twist was a local record here, started in this country. A lot of people didn't really pay attention to it. But by 2012, at the start of the new year in London, it was one of the first songs that were played when they rang in the new year in London and everybody reacted. But where things really, really, really picked up was when Drake happened upon Whiskey's song, Gojueleba, and was so inspired that he brought Whiskey onto his record, One Dance. It launched this genre or this movement into global powerhouse as it's turning to be. When that happened, Davido also got the deal to Sony. And since then, they've been trying to release music targeted stateside and trying to get into Hot 100 and a lot of playlists and all over the place. But in that time, we've also seen a, a lot of good things happen for us. We've had the first Afro Nation Festival in Portugal that had a lot of press and a lot of diaspora people. And then Beyonce dropped the gift in 2019 also. 
And in 2020, Afrobeat Chart launched in the UK. But the most recent work started with Drake's One Dance. It's so frustrating to give Drake credit for literally anything. At least now, you know, there's an invested interest in it. Yeah, definitely. Even down here locally, there's been a lot of there's been a lot of fight about not giving Drake credit because we're like, <laughs> yeah, we're very arrogant and proud here. So when people say, ah, oh, Drake opened your you people up, a lot of people would say, no, 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 no. We've been working really hard. We've been working really hard. So yeah, yeah, I feel the same way too. I think part of what makes Afrobeat so compelling is that it's so amorphous. It's constantly shifting and changing. Monkaper, what was your initial exposure to this music as a child of African parents? What was it like watching it grow into this phenomenon in the U.S.? The experience of West African music in America in my life has always had to do with the presence of like West Africans in America, right? So my family is from Sierra Leone and we've always been in community with not only other Sierra Leoneans, but Ghanaians, Nigerians, and Nigerians um, are like the largest population of Black immigrants in the U.S. period, right? And so the Africans in my life have always been in touch with the music back home, even when it wasn't as easy to facilitate with how accessible the internet is to us now. Um, We would have these parties uh, celebrating weddings, births, what have you. And they would be at these like relatively inexpensive uh, halls or venues, like a community center, a gymnasium, um, maybe like party hall in a strip mall, something like that. This is like classic immigrant, second gen, first gen culture. Every community of immigrants has this experience. (laughs) It's so funny. It's funny. And it's like not only like here in the U.S., but just like in the U.K., I see people talk about the hall parties and um, like, you know, like grime rappers that are of African descent talking about coming up in them. So, yeah, I mean, and in those parties for us, uh, we're hearing music from the Ivory Coast by a really popular group called Magic System. Or we're hearing music from the Congo by Awilo Longomba. And I think that those things are really interesting when we're talking about Afrobeats as sort of like precursors to what is blowing up now. And so, you know, when Oliver Twist premiered on television, and Pusha T is standing next to DeBanch, like my whole world sort of like shifted because it felt like I was seeing two of my cultures really recognizing each other. Um, you know, Kanye West and Big Sean, all of good music is rallying around this artist that I've only heard in familial spaces. But really, you know, my experience of West African music in the world was limited to these family gatherings until I moved to New York in 2017, where there's a huge population of first-gen kids and African immigrants. But I think also at that time, you know, we're on the tail end of one dance. And so that music is spreading everywhere. And I think that in New York, there's like an embrace of it because so many folks have grown up around African culture. And so I remember, you know, in my first summer in in 2017, making like a mad dash to SOBs to catch WizKid perform some songs from Sounds from the Other Side, his American debut, and it being packed wall to wall, you know, a line going down the street. Came into the game, no one replaced me. Me love mine, I see straight, me no chaser. All of my guys know me all about me paper. Me call me girls all around me, me no chaser. And then, you know, the boom of Afrobeats at day parties, at brunches, wasn't just happening in New York, but, you know, I interviewed Amare recently, who's a Ghanaian-American singer, and she was DJing in Atlanta clubs in 2017, where Afrobeats nights were completely packing out venues. And I guess if I had to say maybe why, this boom is happening 
one in my life, like after 2016, after 2017, but just like in the U.S. more broadly, is there's a whole generation of children of West African immigrants, you know, coming of age. You know, in the 90s, there's this Immigration Act that helps push immigration from West Africa, especially with a diversity visa lottery and also with sort of employment visas. And so from 1990 to 2000, the population of African immigrants in the U.S. doubles. And then it doubles again, and more than doubles, actually. And then more than doubles again from 2000 to 2015. So folks are bringing music with them. They're sharing it with their kids. And their kids are going out in the world and experiencing it for themselves, you know. And then I think on maybe like in the American consciousness, like the sort of multi-generational Black American consciousness. There's the Black Lives Matter movement in 2013. And I think that propelled a new generation of thinking and exploration around Black identity and looking at Black identity and struggle as global, right? And, you know, a few years after Black Lives Matter takes off in 2013, we get Black Panther. It's a huge cultural moment with a soundtrack that is marked by West African rhythms and South African artists. And then a couple years after that, Beyonce gives us the gift. So, and of course, all of this is intertwined with, you know, increased accessibility to each other across the globe through the internet. But it's been really exciting to see and it makes me feel really like seen and embraced in my home, you know? Really, I think I've noticed a sort of sense of like oneness and like in that oneness, a curiosity about a lot of like Black Americans sort of like ancestral home, so... Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. Joey, from your perspective, why are music fans and audiences seizing onto this music in so many places outside of West Africa? From my perspective, it's down to the very, the hybrid nature of it. Because traditionally, even when we go back to the original Afrobeat, it was a genre that was created from bringing things from all over the world. And even when you go back to the history of Afrobeat, Fela made militant music after spending time with the Black Panthers in the U.S. That's when he became more conscious and started adding political affiliations to his music. But his sounds were jazz. You could hear early Fela had James Brown in him. Early Fela had soul in him. It was later when they told him, hey, if you're from Africa and you want to make African music, then you have to literally start including African things to your music. And so he added the Yoruba, he added a bit of the Yoruba chanting, he added the conga drums and all of that. So that very nature or essence of cutting and mashing and, you know, bringing in from different cultures and sampling that's what has guided Afrobeats to this very point. And when you check all the sounds that are happening now, there's a mixture of everything in there. Bonaboy calls himself an Afrofusion artist because we have sounds coming in from the diaspora, from island sounds like dance hall and the rest of them. We have soca here. We have South Africans here with their music also. And so that very nature of people hearing a lot of themselves in it is also very important. And it hasn't always been this way, to be honest. It hasn't always been this way. In the late 90s, early 2000s, in Lagos here, we didn't have this industry. Some of the biggest artists that were on radio then were Backstreet Boys and NSYNC. 
to be honest. A lot of my teenage years, I spent it listening to NSYNC and Backstreet Boys and all of that. <laughs> and so we also had a lot of hip hop. Uh, Jay-Z was a hero here. Artists like Eve, Nelly, those were big stars here. And then we had a lot of reggae music and all of that. But as time went on and we began to feel the need to create a local pop industry here, people just picked up from all of these influences. Sure, we had like a dominance of our local sound culture, but all of these influences got into the music. And to be an Afrobeat producer in Nigeria is to constantly go through a lot of sound cultures and just chop and mix and mash until you create something that works. I check the top 10 or top 20 songs that are dominating Lagos now and everything feels influenced by different parts of the world. There's flamenco music in there. There's Amapiano from South Africa in there. And so Afrobeats on its own is very experimental. And I think that's one of the reasons why a lot of people can yeah. connect to it and it can spread and people can find themselves in it because we bring it from everywhere. Yeah. I mean, as you've seen, you know, in the last couple of years, it has risen to a kind of more prominent place in global music. Have you seen that affect the music industry in Nigeria too? Prior to this, we had an industry that was run without best practices. A lot of times some artists release their biggest hits without mixing and mastering. Some people do not have like purpose. A lot of people lack the education in how things were done globally. And you could have artists literally release their music for free. You could have them leak their music themselves. The main focus was usually on performances and getting money from performances. And then we lacked funding also. We lacked a lot of funding. And so the money that was coming into the scene was not enough to power a lot of the things that we wanted to do here. And so, you know, a lot of people went to illegal spaces to get money. But with it blowing all over the world and these companies coming in, they started bringing in their money more than anything. Banks weren't giving us loans. We didn't have good record label structures and the ones that we had were struggling. But with people like RCA coming in, WANA coming in, they're bringing in their money and they're signing artists and they're saying, hey, you know, we can fund a lot of these processes. And so artists are taking this money. And then also mentally, it's given our creative class more confidence. We've had more people. We knew we could dominate the African industry before. And we've dominated it without any help, foreign help. But now with the access that we have, with the infrastructure that we're trying to create, with the money that's coming into the space, our artists are now very bold. They're ambitious now. They're taking on projects and using strategies that a lot of people would only imagine that they would do in other places. So, and then to bring money back into the system, we've seen a rise in streaming revenue also. Previously, we didn't have a lot of it, but with the access that we've had now, a lot of artists are, you know, they've ramped up their streaming now. We've had artists having, Davido went gold in the US. Fall went gold in the US. That yeah. was a big deal over here. Davido's album, A yeah, Better Time, a, a Good Time, the previous one before this one, it had over 1 billion streams globally. That's a big deal for an Afrobeats artist. Do you feel like with the popularity and with all of these corporations coming in with their money and their, you know, some of their own goals, is there any conversation or criticism about what major labels or what mainstream or bigger artists want to do with Afrobeats as tied to like appropriation or co-opting it without spending the diligence and the amount of time that they should be spending within the scene or the community? Definitely. Um, definitely. We have 
To be honest, when all of these things happened, when the scramble started in 2016, with the big companies coming in and all. We had like a, a pocket of skepticism. For example, we knew what happened with the people from the island. Uh, there was a time when island music was it, when they did a lot of crossover into the US, when artists like Wayne Wonder, Kevin Little, and all of them, Mavado and all of them, they had like their US shots. And that didn't happen for them. What happened was people took the sound and left the artists. A school of thought here says, the same thing is going to happen to us. We're going to have people who would come down here study what we have, get the sauce from us, and then abandon us. Are you finding that when they're coming in, they are putting like local representatives into positions of power within their like offices or label structures or anything? Or are these mostly people who are coming with the company itself? Well, for the most part, I worked at Universal for a year, you know, recently uh, in 2018. And the way the structure is for a number of these companies is they'll put a few local people here that would, you know, give them the the knowledge, give them the technique, the technical know-how and, and teach them or guide them through the terrain. But if you really want to make decisions, the people making decisions are not from here. The people making the big ass decisions, right. the people signing the checks, the people um, green lighting contracts and green lighting activations and all of these investments, they're not from here. So while we have local people here that have done some, you know, middle management positions, when you boil down to it, when you, you know, go deeper, you discover that, hey, these people, there's a limit to their power and everything, every decision that makes sense uh, comes from a foreigner. Well, on that note, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll unpack Afrobeats as a genre label and test whether it makes any sense at all to keep using the term. Ever wanted to go inside the Met Gala? I'm Cho Minardi, and this week on The Run Through with Vogue, we take you inside the world's most exclusive and glamorous party. We'll talk about the best looks from the red carpet and everything that happened after. Listen to the run through with Vogue wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the Pitchfork Review. I'm your host, Pooja Patel, and we're talking about the global rise of Afrobeats with Monkapur Conte and Joey Aiken. I think a thing that I wanted us to talk about here is just the term Afrobeats. Is using Afrobeats as a consistent genre label useful to anyone? Um, this is a conversation we have internally at Pitchfork all the time, by the way. But I think it's more useful to consider whether artists and producers think of it as a single style, or is this something that, you know, people like us, that critics and outsiders have imposed on it? Yeah, I think about this a lot, too. And I often think about this great op-ed that OK Africa ran by a writer named Corade Akinchete last February, like around the sort of rise of this sort of heightened American consciousness of Afrobeats, if you will. And, you know, in this op-ed, she writes that, Africa, as like massive and diverse as it is, has always existed in the Western imagination as a monolith. And when Afrobeats is used to describe all of the music that comes out of the continent, that's a symptom of that, right? She gives this really good example of Major Lazer's Afrobeats DJ Mix project that came out a couple years ago, but the first tracks on that project were South African Gom. Drake and Diplo are the two <laughs> ambassadors of cringe 
when it comes to international music. I'm just throwing that out there. Yeah, I mean, Diplo is so far from, like, my consciousness of Afrobeats <laughs> that I'm not, like, particularly, like, perturbed by him. Rihanna calling his music airport lounge reggae was great. But yeah, you know, like, those sorts of things, right? Like, those are sort of symptomatic of Africa being seen as one place with one identity and one sound. And Afrobeats, even in itself, is so much bigger than that. And so this really smart writer sort of proposed is that one, African music often belongs to well-established genres like high life that originated in Ghana that has like really awesome guitar in it. And so sometimes we can just call the music that, right? Right. But, and when we can't, you know, like it can be identified as pop music from the specific country or even more specific scene that it's from. So rather than Afrobeats, we could think about it as Nigerian pop or Ghanaian pop, the same way we think about sort of like K-pop, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I think Africa just exists in the Western imagination so different differently that that has been a struggle in the commodification of it. But I guess my own sort of like personal thoughts on it is that like we as humans kind of crave community and identification and categorization. And it really does come down to what that means to the artists, right? There are artists that I hear completely embrace being uh, labeled an Afrobeats artist. Like Tiwa Savage is an amazing one. She's been mm -hmm. singing for a long time. Uno like enjoyment. If money day for pocket, shipping our national budget, we go blow up like chocolate. Her debut album came out in 2013 and she's been sort of like one of the queens of the Afrobeat scene since then. And she's an example of an artist that has embraced the term. I think it really comes down to what artists want and what it's important for us to do as Western media is to honor how artists identify themselves. Totally. What about Joey? Like, how is it there? How is Afrobeats considered? Is it considered at all or is it broken down way more? I remember the first time the term Afrobeats was mentioned uh, within the music industry here, in the music spaces, in the media spaces that serve the industry. We kicked against it. We kicked against it a lot then. We were very, very much against it that, hey, we're very jealous of Afrobeats. The one fella created, what is this? This has no meaning. It has no connection to Afrobeat. You're reigning, you're reigning a genre that everyone here loves, something that's very symbolic to us. So in, initially we had that problem. But as time went on, you know, and we understood why it was a necessary evil, a number of us said, okay, we're just going to, I don't use the word accept it, but we can live with it. The term Afrobeats is not used locally for us here. It's when we leave this country. But down here, it's not it's not something we generally use to refer to our music down here. Our music is diverse. Our music has a lot of styles. So even when you classify it as Afrobeats or when we even try to call it Afrobeats here, we still understand that that in itself is a container that we all put it in for us to sell, a marketing container. So down here, the Afrobeats that everybody calls Afrobeats in the West, it's literally just pop music from West Africa. That's what it is. It's pop dance music from West Africa, which a lot of people are complaining about because when you come down to West Africa, you'd have you'd have a number of genres, lots of genres, not a single dominant style, just a number a lot of genres here. Like we have high life, we have Apala, we have Fuji, we have something called Altair. All things are not replicate are not, you know, captured in the term Afrobeats. Only when we leave the continent 
is when we use that. But locally, right. nah, 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 nah. Give us our dance and our pop music. Yeah, actually, with you mentioning those specific genres, I feel like most of our listeners are not attuned with the things that make up West African pop music. And I'm wondering if you guys could break it down a little bit more. Like for casual listeners, what lives within West African pop? Are there any trends or scenes or specific genres or sounds that we should be paying attention to? There are a lot of sounds, basically. A lot of sounds all over the place. But I think the most dominant that we have now is called Afrofusion. A lot of what we do here is Afrofusion, to be honest. I've listened to her music. Even today, I listen to a lot of the releases that were out. And it's not a monolith. It's almost like no two artists make the same music. They just have... Uh, similar influences or they have a range of influences that they share, but no two artists make the same. Yeah, I mean, I think that Afrofusion is just like a more like honest sort of real sort of encapsulation as a term of what people are doing. There's dance hall in it. There's reggae. There's rap. There's hip hop. There's R&B. There's high life. There's Fuji. There's all these callbacks to traditional uh, West African genres. And so, I mean, some of the artists that are most popular that think about themselves as Afrofusion artists are Burna Boy, of course, Oxlade. Amare is a favorite. And so, yeah, Amare is a great example of an Afrofusion artist, her music, her project, she's only had two, one EP and one LP, but they're so cohesive and united by her sort of like poppy, smooth R&B singing. There's a song that's on her new album called Leave Me Alone, and it starts off with guitar that's reminiscent of the guitar used in high life music that originated in Ghana, where she's from. Talking, 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 she... And in that song, you also hear like a strong sort of dance hall rhythm. And so Afrofusion is just a really smart way that I think a lot of West African artists have taken ownership over their music and what they're showing the world. I was going to say, could you um, explain this other subgenre that I've heard about called Afro Swing? Yeah, I think that Afro Swing is really fun. Some of the artists that people may have been familiar with, you know, like covered on the site are NSG, a group from the UK, and Jay Huss, another artist from the UK. And Afro Swing is thought to have been sort of birthed in the UK as a derivative of dancehall and what we think about as Afro beats with also influences from hip hop, a little bit of R&B, and there's rapping on it. Usually really melodic rapping. So like a good example of it is Jay Huss. Huss's Cucumber, which is a completely silly song about his dick, but uh, is fun to listen to. He's clearly rapping in the hip-hop tradition, but he's using Caribbean and British slang in the verses. He's singing the hooks, and he's performing over a beat that I could totally hear an Afrobeats artist take on. I can make you fall in love with everything I do But you wanna always bite up more than you can change Joey, earlier, he mentioned Alte, which is one of my favorite sort of new scenes to come out of West Africa. I wonder if he has some like favorites or some sort of like stylistic markers that he wants to talk about. To be honest, if I have to say this, Alte has been one of the most polarizing genres or subgenres in Afrobeats 2015, 2016. We began to have our own collective of SoundCloud artists. So the same way the U.S. hip hop had all the emo rap people jump out from SoundCloud. 
yeah, we had a collective or a movement from SoundCloud. Uh, they eventually turned into something called the Alter Artists. It's a play on the word alternative. It's just Nigerian music that blends a variety of sounds, drawing heavily from Western influence and has a strong alternative aesthetic. So when you talk to Alter people, they would they still would not agree that they have a genre. They would say they have a movement. And that's because it goes beyond the music. The name Alter can be traced back to the 2014 song Paper by Boj. Uh, Boj was a member of the group DRB. And he had this line then, the ladies like me because I'm an alter guy. And so alter, they were filled with a lot of Gen Z people. A number of them wore dirty sneakers. People used to take shots at them for wearing dirty sneakers. <laughs> I also get made fun of by my peers for wearing beat up Air Force Ones, but I will stand by my <laughs> desire to get the most out of my sneakers, okay? Well... In the Alter people, they have the same things. They always uh, took shots at them also. And then a few people rose to the top and became very, um, became uh, mascots for the movement. And they involved Odunse the Engine. Odunse the Engine has a, a very great project. It's called Rare. You can check it out. It's also Creole Santino. We used to go by the name Santi. He has a project called Mandy and the Jungle. He goes by the name Creole Santino now, but back then he was Santi. And this was... This was one of his projects that, you know, I'm proud that came out of Nigeria. Hey, remember couldn't get a 20 from my mom. Now I drive 20 on a lap because I'm on. I feel the love when I'm riding through the city, but I see him looking at me, pray the bullets don't hit me from the side. And then there's also Lady Donnelly, uh, someone else who takes uh, influences from like extremely old African music. And then we have Thames. Thames is doing a, a lot of good work now. There's a single she has on air now. It's called Damages. It's a focus track. It's making the rounds, getting into playlists and all of that. And so what the alter people, they do, it's still the same combination, but... Where previously we combined a lot and everything came out very West African, there's, while there are West African influences, the final product sounds more like what you'd have in the West or a more Westernized version of what we have as Afrobeat. So that's why it's all there. There's a song here, No Finesse by Odunsi. It's a very typical alter song. You hear rock in it, you hear hip hop, and then you hear a lot of singing in pidgin English. So it's westernized, but you still have what we have locally in it. So all of these things come together to create this amazing, constantly evolving animal that we call Afrobeats. Well, with all of this hybrid music coming out and with there being all of these Labels who are now investing in Western African pop music and, you know, artists who are purposefully making things that can be kind of emulative of what might be on pop radio in the States or the UK. Like, where do you think this is going next? What is on the horizon for the, you know, <laughs> clump of music that we shall not refer to as Afrobeats anymore because they're all separate? <laughs> But like, what is the future of Afrobeats hold? For me, I see what's happening down here, tracking changes and growth patterns over the last 10 years in this genre. We've moved from nothing 
to something. It's a bit of a grass to grace story. I remember when, I remember there was a time when in this industry, we didn't have artists who understood how to put music on SoundCloud. We still had, we had people fighting over how to manage their YouTube and all of these things. But now it's not a problem. We have, we have a lot of education. We have a lot of infrastructure in place. Um, we've seen our art like released locally here and get plugged and playlisted all over the world. We've seen it get distributed in a lot of ways. We've seen our music get into the biggest spaces. We've seen it at the biggest concerts, at the biggest festivals being played. The future here is with the way the business is going, with a lot of companies setting up. I see a future where some of our artists will be competing on the Hot 100. You could see an Oxley drop a song here in this market. And by the next week, Tuesday, it's already you know, top 10 and the hot 100, you know. I see a future like that for us. Uh, I also see a future where the sound continues to shift and with a lot more westernized influence coming in, we'll have more western style products being generated here because the investment is coming from the west. A lot of the infrastructure is coming down from the west. We've seen R&B take a very strong route here. It's on every album that has any global ambition or pretends to have a global ambition. We've seen R&B take root in these albums. Hip-hop too, you know, in certain countries like Ghana, there's a big drill scene happening in Ghana. So what I'm saying is we'll get to a point where the music that is being celebrated globally as pop music and the music that's being celebrated locally and being released here locally as pop music, I think they'll still be the same thing. They'll become the same thing. A little bit of differences, you know, but generally we'd we'll have a lot more similarities between them. Monkeper, what about you? I think that Joey's captured it really beautifully. And I think that my only sort of concern in hearing, you know, him lay out what the future of Afrobeats and its related and inspired genres um, might be is that the westernization doesn't overtake what makes the music special and sound like home to me and to so many other people. You know, when I think about some of the collaborations between uh, American and uh, British artists and African artists, artists that have come out in the past few months, they, I don't think, are emblematic of the best things about some of the African artists that are helming those tracks, right? Like T.O.S. Savage's collaboration with Sam Smith or Burna Boy and Chris Martin or DeVito and Lil Baby. I don't think those tracks on those albums represent what really makes those artists special. Right. And I, those are the tracks that will get pushed to the world, right? Right. Um, and so, I mean, of course, I definitely want to see African artists from the biggest marquee artists to the Alte folks experience wealth and abundance and success. I just hope that everyone gets to do so on their own terms. Totally. This has been an extremely educational like chat. Thank you guys so much for doing this. Truly. Thanks for having me, Pooja. Thanks for having me, Pooja. Thank you so much. If you want to hear the songs we talked about on this episode, check out our Spotify playlist. It's called The Pitchfork Review, Music from the Podcast. The Pitchfork Review is hosted by me, Pooja Patel. Thanks to Monkapur Kante and Joey Aiken for joining me. You can follow Monkapur on Twitter, at Monkapur, and you can follow Joey, at Joey Aiken. You can also sign up for Joey's newsletter, Afrobeats Intelligence, on Substack. You can follow me on Twitter, at Sonari. You can follow Pitchfork on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Pitchfork. This episode was produced by Zachariah Hughes and Rufara Mazarura. It was edited by Andy Kush and Zachariah Hughes. Our original music is by Andrew Epen of Basement Crafts. 
This episode was mixed and scored by Mark Bush. Special thanks to Amy Phillips. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to leave us a review and subscribe to the podcast. You can also send an email to podcast at pitchfork.com with any feedback. Thanks for listening and see you next week. I'm Nomi Fry, and this week on Critics at Large, we're talking about the delights and shortcomings of the new movie Challengers. It starred Zendaya at the center of a tennis triangle and a very steamy love triangle. Who are her loyalties to? Will she be tempted by the other one? How do these guys reckon their professional playing ambition with their romantic and sexual feelings about this mysterious woman? And such we have it. We have a conflict between three people in a game meant for two. Is it a sports movie or a sex movie? Find out on Critics at Large from The New Yorker. New episodes drop every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts.